And so um, after I sat down for the welcome, my lovely wife leaned over and tenderly whispered in my ear. I had no idea what that Lord of the Rings reference was about. Um, so let me make it a little bit more user-friendly. Um, we want the gathering of God's people to be less like the devastation of Isabel and more like the healing and aftermath that occurred and the cleanup afterwards. There's pain in this room every time we gather. We're kidding ourselves if we say there's not. But we want this to be a place where healing happens, not where unnecessary pain is inflicted. Now, sometimes God's word does bring pain. Jesus is a surgeon. He's a great physician. And sometimes he takes the scalpel of his word and it cuts us, but always and only in order to heal. But one concerns me often, I think, in, in many of our Bible studies and and churches and sermons is that we sometimes take a story like the story in Matthew's gospel where we read just a moment ago about what Jesus has done and we turn it into something about what we're supposed to do rather than reading the text and learning and rejoicing and even resting in the work of Christ, we turn it into another checklist for you and me. And this is one of those passages that, if I can be honest, uh, this is kind of a, one of those that Baptists love. Baptist preachers love a passage like this because this is a story, the, the baptism of Jesus, where I get to say, Jesus was baptized and so should you. And let's just cue up just as I am now. I see that hand. There's a lot of mischief that has been done in preaching and interpreting this great and powerful passage of Scripture. An ancient heresy called adoptionism said that Jesus was baptized so that he could either become the Son of God, or become the Messiah. An ancient document called the Gospel of the Hebrews taught that Jesus was baptized just in case he had committed a sin of ignorance that he wasn't aware of. In the musical Godspell, Jesus simply says, I want to get washed up. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus was baptized so he could remember his pre-human existence and begin showing people how to follow Jehovah. Muslims teach that Jesus was baptized to purify himself and begin teaching Allah's message. Mormons teach that Jesus was baptized simply to set an example for us that we should be baptized too. Queer theologians teach that Jesus' baptism is, is nothing but a, a lesson in how rituals help us in our transitions towards self-discovery. And some Christians are hardly any better. For many, Jesus' baptism is nothing but a good example. 
that we should be baptized too, or that we need symbols to launch new chapters in our journeys with God. I want to show you from this text that there's something much deeper and much more beautiful and much more healing going on in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus' baptism is a preview of what he came to do. That's why Jesus was baptized, to give us a preview of what he came to do. So if you're not already there, go to Matthew 3, verse 13. If you're with us, last Sunday we introduced the new character who's the biological cousin of Jesus, a guy named John the Baptist, and he's out at the Jordan River, and he's baptizing people. And John has risen to prominence at this point. He's kind of at the peak of his ministry, and there's crowds of people flocking to Jordan's muddy banks to be baptized by him. And all of a sudden, a 30-year-old carpenter's son from Nazareth gets in the baptismal line. And in what happens next in the story, we're going to see that Jesus' baptism is a preview of what he came to do. I want to unpack that big idea with you this morning and consider three staggering truths from this passage of Scripture. Three staggering truths. Number one, I want you to understand that in this story, in this event, this historical event, Jesus identifies with sinners. Jesus identifies with sinners. Now, we, we hear that, and, and as Christians or people familiar with the Christian story, that does not shock us as much as it should, but it should. Look at what, what's happening in the text. Verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So picture Jesus, he's walking towards his cousin John the Baptist, and he says, I'm here to get baptized. John is thinking that Jesus is going to show up, and, and Jesus is going to take over, and he's going to start baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So it's shocking to John that Jesus says, I want you to baptize me, and John would have prevented Jesus. I think sometimes we, we look at that and we think it's kind of like you would have prevented your parents paying for lunch. But you don't try that hard. You're like, Mom, can I? Nah, it's okay. But can I get dessert too? Is that fine? You know, John's like, Jesus, really? Okay, fine. I'll bow. What an honor. Sure, I'll baptize you. No, the text actually indicates that, that John is insistent. He's persisting. He's continuing. He kept trying to keep Jesus from letting him baptize him. The question is, why? Why is John so concerned about baptizing Jesus? The answer is found in verse 11, where John explains his baptism. Go back to the text we looked at last week, Matthew 3, verse 11. John is saying, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Remember why John was baptizing people. He was baptizing them with a baptism of repentance. So when they waded into Jordan's banks, they were doing so so that they could symbolize their outward repentance. 
Because they had confessed and turned from their sin and even turned from their self-righteousness and admitted that they had nothing on their own by which they could appeal to God for mercy. They dip into those baptismal waters. That's why they were baptized. It was a baptism of repentance. But Jesus didn't need to repent. He is not a rebellious sinner. He is not a self-righteous hypocrite. John himself would say about Jesus in the Gospel of John that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not only is this Jesus not himself a sinner, but he is the one that is able to take away, to carry, to hold, to absorb wrath of God in our place for our sin. So John is absolutely appalled that Jesus would say, baptize me. Russell Moore, in his book, Tempted and Tried, says this. He says, to hear Jesus' request to be baptized would have felt to John the way it might feel to you to hear your spouse announce an interest in being listed on a registry of child molesters. Just let the weight of that sink in a little bit. To see someone so pure identifying with someone so heinous ought to be shocking to us. Jesus is walking up to John the Baptist, and he says, baptize me in a baptism of repentance. Notice how Jesus responds to John's objections in verse 15. Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus does not rebuke John. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, you know he's, he's not, you know, some sort of pushover guy that's never afraid to rebuke people, right? You remember what he says to Peter after Peter says, you're not going to die. Jesus says, get thee behind me, what? Satan. It's a pretty harsh rebuke. You ever been called Satan by somebody? It's a rough one. He's, a, he's, he's not afraid to rebuke people. But he doesn't rebuke John here. He doesn't say, what are you doing, man? He doesn't do that. Why? Because Jesus is greater than John. He knows that. Jesus isn't sinful. Jesus doesn't have the need for repentance. But he says, let it be so for now. John, this feels upside down right now because in a sense it is. The time is coming when I will be honored as I should be, and I will be glorified as I should be. The time is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But now, let it be so. Let me be baptized by you. Why? Verse 15 again. Thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's that word fulfill again. Remember, this is a a key word in Matthew's gospel. 
Uh, one commentator says this, this word fulfill is actually the theme for Matthew's entire gospel. It's all about fulfillment, filling up. And Jesus is saying there's a filling up that needs to happen. Of what? Of all righteousness. Now, whose righteousness needs to be filled up? It's certainly not Jesus' righteousness. Jesus is fully and completely righteous. Paul uses the same word, the same base word, fulfilled in Colossians 1.19, where he says of Jesus, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus is fully God. He's God filled up in the human flesh. He is fully God. And if he's fully God, he's fully righteous. So Jesus is not saying my righteousness needs to be fulfilled. So then whose righteousness needs filling up? Yours and mine and everybody else on the banks of the Jordan River and everybody else that would ever call upon the name of Jesus. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Last week we talked about repentance and repentance is crucial. You, you won't... Let me, let me just remind you, dear friend, you will never come to God unless you repent and believe. That's how we come to God. Turning from our sin, that's repentance, and turning to Him, that's faith, that's belief. Repentance is absolutely crucial. But listen to me. Merely repenting is not enough to save you if you don't have righteousness. Think about it. Think about Jordan's, the, 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 the river there, and John baptizing people, and they admit their sin. They admit their self-righteousness. They walk into the water. John baptizes them. They confess their sin. They walk out of the water. As it were, they walked in dirty and came out clean. But how long will those people remain clean? How long until they sin again? If it were you, how long would it be for you? For those of you that have entered into the waters of Christian baptism, it's different from John's, but similar. For those of you that have entered into the baptism waters, and you've identified your faith in Jesus Christ through public baptism, how long did it take for you after your baptism to sin? Anybody make it a full day? The problem is we repent, and what do we do? We keep sinning. Uh, nobody's a better example of this than Martin Luther. Before he was born again, he was a monk in a monastery, and he used to spend upwards of six hours a day in confession with his priest, trying to make sure that he confessed every single deed. Oh, I forgot that one. Let me, I, I did this one thing. Oh, and you know what? When I confessed two hours ago, I kind of did it with impure motives. So will you forgive me for the, the way that I've confessed my sin? And, and maybe I'm doing it for the wrong reason. So he would confess and confess and confess to the point that his confessor, his priest, listening to his confession would say to him, Martin, get out of here, commit a real sin, and come back. But Martin was right about one thing. He was right that if we are saved on the basis of our ability to rightly repent and confess, then all of us are going to hell. 
Because it's not merely enough for you to turn from your sin because you're going to sin again. These people walking out of the Jordan River may have confessed and they may have repented, but they're going to need repentance and confession again. So Jesus walks into those waters to identify with those sinners and show us a preview of what he's going to do. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 12, that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus is, is walking into those waters as if he's a sinner needing repentance and is there identifying with his people. Listen, brother, sister, friend, this is, this is so important. Jesus is not walking into the Jordan to wash away his own sin, but to begin the process of washing away ours. Jesus is sharing in our baptism so we can share in his. The, the price ultimately paid to, to wash away our sins would come not on Jordan's muddy banks, but on the hill called Calvary three years later. And speaking of his impending death, as Jesus is teaching his disciples, I'm going to die. And he says, he likens his upcoming death to a baptism. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 12. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. There on a hill outside Jerusalem, Jesus will complete the work that he began at the Jordan River three years earlier. There on that cross, the Father would make him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' baptism is a preview of what he has come to do. Jesus came to redeem, to save sinners like you and me, and he begins to identify with us by walking into the waters of baptism. The second staggering truth to consider with, uh, in this text this morning. Number two, the Father identifies with Jesus. Jesus identifies with, the, with sinners. The Father identifies with Jesus. Now, there's a misconception about the persons of the Trinity. Perhaps you felt, felt guilty to this once or twice yourself. We sometimes picture the Holy Spirit as kind of the chaotic and crazy member of the Trinity. He's unpredictable. You know, what's he going to do? Is he going to be a dove or flames of fire? You know, not quite sure. And then there's the Father. He's the, the stern and the serious one. You know, he's the one that makes sure everyone's following the rules. And Jesus is, is the gentle and meek and mild and level-headed sort of one. He's the one that we go to. And, and, and this misconception about the Trinity, Jesus kind of comes to earth and he's convincing the stern and serious Father to save humanity. Nothing could be further from the truth. From the very beginning... The mission of God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together are excited to save sinners. And you see it right here in this text. Look at verse 16. Then John the Baptist consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. 
And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, before we go any further, let's stop for just a moment and talk about the doctrine, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Around 1,600 years ago, there was a preacher named Augustine from northern Africa, and he preached a 23-point sermon on this passage. So none of you can complain at all. 23 points. Um, it's a really good sermon, too, so I might get some ideas from Augustine. Anyways, we'll talk about that next week. Augustine, he would sometimes say to, to heretics that denied the Trinity, he would say, listen, all you need to do is go to Jordan. If you want to see the Trinity, if you want to see God in three persons, come here to this story and you see the Father speaking. You see the the Spirit descending like a dove and you see the Son with His hair dripping wet in the baptismal waters. In his sermon on this text, Augustine said this, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are a Trinity inseparable, inseparable. One God, not three gods. But yet, so one God, as that the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son, and the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son, but the Spirit of the Father and of the Son. I'm seeing some of those good, confused faces, which means we're talking about the Trinity. If you want it really, really simply, Augustine is saying that we believe that there is one God in three persons. So three persons. The Father is not getting baptized in the Jordan River, is He? No. It's the Son. The Spirit isn't speaking from heaven. It's the Father. And the Son isn't descending like a dove. It's the Spirit. The three distinct persons with three distinct roles. And yet... Even though there are three persons, there is but one God. This is what Augustine calls an inseparable trinity. They are unified. Father, Son, and Spirit are in perfect unity. All of them together saying, yes, this is what we will do. Or J.I. Packer, or J.C. Ryle rather, says it was the, the whole trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. And it was the whole Trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. Father, Son, Holy Spirit working together to bring about the salvation of sinners like you and me. Now, now here's, here's what I want you to get. Here's the staggering truth here. The Father is not ashamed to identify with Jesus as Jesus is identifying with sinners. I want you to see three things the Father does in this story. First, He opens the heavens. The Father opens the heavens. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him. Uh, The Bible occasionally talks about the the heavens being opened, uh, different visions that people are having throughout the scriptures. And every time the heavens are opening, something amazing is happening. And God is ripping open the heavens. And he's, he's saying something incredible is happening here. 
Isaiah 64, verse 1, may have been on Matthew's mind. This text says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God is saying, my son is here. He opens up the heavens. Number two, he sends the Spirit. Verse 16, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And by the way, this doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is a bird um, just descending like a dove. I, I'm not exactly sure if that means he, we see everyone seeing an actual dove or, or somehow like a dove descends, the Spirit is descending. It's really not the point. The point is that the Father is sending the Spirit. And once again, Matthew is, is echoing something that Isaiah the prophet had said. In Isaiah 61 verse 1, the Messiah himself says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The Messiah is here. Now, Jesus is not here at the baptism for the first time getting acquainted with the Holy Spirit. You remember he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. For this first 30 years of his life, Jesus has walked in sync with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not getting acquainted with Jesus for the first time. That's not what's happening. But John Calvin helps us to understand. He says, now that the full time has come for preparing to discharge the office of Redeemer, he is clothed with a new power of the Spirit, and that not so much for his own sake as for the sake of others. In other words, the Spirit is coming down and descending on Jesus and filling him with power for you. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, he is going about in the power of the Spirit, loving and blessing and serving people. He heals by the power of the Spirit. He casts out demons in the Spirit. He preaches good news with the power of the Spirit. He goes where he needs to go by the power of the Spirit. We're going to see next Sunday that it's the Spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He endures the cross by the power of the Spirit and rises from the dead by the power of the Spirit. The Father gives His Son the Spirit so that the Spirit might have power to fulfill His mission and bless you. The third thing the Father does as Jesus is baptized is He speaks. Verse 17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I want you to notice the words of the father to the son. First he says, you are mine. This is my son. Matthew is clearly alluding to Psalm chapter 2 verse 7, a messianic psalm. And it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son Today I have begotten you. You know, it's interesting. The very first temptation that Jesus endures in the wilderness begins with Satan saying, if you are the Son of God. Sounds like what he slitheringly whispered to our first parents in a garden paradise. Did God really say? 
The Father says to Jesus, you are mine. The Father says to the Son, you are loved. Not just that this is my Son, but this is my beloved Son. Once again, this is a a clear echo of, of something in the Old Testament. There's a story in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, where God the Father speaks to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, take your son, your beloved son, bring him to the top of Mount Moriah and put him to death. Do you remember that scene as Isaac and Abraham are walking up that mountain and Isaac says, we've got the, the wood and we've got everything for the sacrifice, Father, but where is the lamb? And Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb. And on the top of that mountain, the beloved son of Abraham was spared. And 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ climbed the very same mountain in Israel. And there, God provided the lamb. There, the beloved son was put to death in your place and in mine. God says, you are mine. God says, you are loved. God says, I am pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know, I think these are some of the most precious words a son can hear from his daddy. I'm proud of you. I wonder, I wonder how many men on death row would not be there had they heard words like that more often from their dads. I was talking to someone not long ago about this, this show that used to be all the rage years ago called Lost. And uh, if you watch Lost, you know one of the things about Lost was that there was literally a dozen and a half or two dozen major characters in this show, and all of them were developed at different points throughout the show. But one thing that united all of these characters, all of them, every single one of them had daddy issues. All of them. All of them did. We often do, don't we? And so the son coming out of the baptismal waters in the very moment where he's identifying with sinners. This is not when Jesus walks on water that he hears these words. It's not after turning water into wine. It's not after feeding 5,000. It's not after saying, peace, be still, or some amazing miracle. It's in the very moment where he identifies with you and me. There, God says, I am proud of you, son. I am well pleased in you. Because this is the plan of the the entire trinity. This is not Jesus twisting the Father's arm. This is the Father in love sending His Son for you to save you. It's it's easy for me to identify with the Buckeyes when they play like a top 10 team. But then they play so poorly, it looks like they could lose the Virginia Tech It gets a little bit harder. It's a little bit harder. But I love that the Father chooses this moment to speak these words to His Son. Now, we could say perhaps that the only moment where Jesus really goes lower than this 
is when he's on the cross. On the cross, Jesus will not see the heavens opened up. On the cross, he will not see the Spirit descend like a dove. On the cross, Jesus will not hear the voice of his Father. He will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, Jesus will not merely symbolically, but literally actually be bearing the weight of our sin. But here, as Jesus begins that mission that's going to be unfolded over the next three years, here God says, I am well pleased with you. This is incredibly glorious good news. Jesus' baptism is a preview of what he came to do. Now, there's one final staggering truth that we need to see. Jesus identifies with sinners. The Father identifies with Jesus. Hallelujah. God identifies with his people. Now, we've looked at the text to understand its meaning. I want us to examine its significance for you and me today. But, but I need to say this first. I need you to listen to me very carefully. If you are in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, you've not repented and put your faith in Christ, I'm not talking about being perfect. I, I'm talking about where is your faith? Where is your hope? Where is your trust? Is it in Jesus or is it in being, is it in being good enough? If you're in this room and your faith is not in Christ, none of what I'm about to say is true for you no matter how good you are. Today could be the best religious day of your life and it doesn't matter. None of it, none of it is true for you. But all of it can be if today you turn and trust this Jesus. Now to the Christians in this room, listen to me because you also need to, be, you need to hear something. Everything, everything I'm about to say is gloriously incredibly, amazingly, always true for you if you're a Christian, regardless of your performance. Today might be the worst day of your religious life. It doesn't matter. This is true of you if you belong to Jesus. So what is it? What is it? How does God identify with his people? Well, the scriptures re repeatedly say that if you belong to Jesus, you are in Christ. You're in Christ. It's called union with Christ. Uh, one of the metaphors that the Bible uses to explain union with Christ is baptism with Jesus or baptism into Jesus. So listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. And by the way, this isn't talking about the physical waters of baptism, but, but the baptism that happens when you repent and believe. It's conversion. It's the moment you got saved. Listen to Galatians 3. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus, you put on Jesus. You're in him. Like I'm in this jacket right now. You are in Christ. Now, if you are in Christ, because Jesus identified with you in your sinful state, and because the Father identified with Jesus in that moment, God identifies with you if you're a Christian. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you're a, a third-string defender for a soccer team. And it's the championship game, 
all season, you sat on the bench, your third string. It's a championship game, and you're on the bench for the whole game. You're watching it unfold, and you're all-star uh, striker or forward, whoever. I don't know the positions in soccer. I'm an American. Anyways, uh, one of the guys gets up there, the kicker guys, and um, he scores the winning goal. He's the all-star player. You're a third string backup on the bench. You haven't played a second of game time all season, but the team won. They won the championship. Here's the question. Are you a champion? Yes. Why? Because the victory has been credited to you because you're wearing the jersey. You are in that jersey. You are on that team. And so all of the glory and all of it, all of that victory, every single bit of it is credited not just to the individual that kicks the winning goal, but to the entire team. So too for we who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, what the Father says to the Son is true of you. Not because you deserve it, but because his victory has been credited to you. Not because you are good, but because he is good. So Christian, Christians in this room, listen to what God is saying to you through his word, through this story right now. You are mine. You are mine. Because Jesus is the Son of God, and because he dies in the place of sinners like you and me, we are adopted into God's family if we come to him with repentance and faith. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. You know, for years and years, I, I always wanted to have a big brother I'm one, of, I'm one of 11, and I'm the biggest brother. And I don't like being the biggest brother because there's a lot of weight um, that comes with being the biggest brother. And I always wanted a big brother. And one time I was reading Hebrews 2.11, and it just wrecked me because I got a big brother. His name is Jesus, and he's not ashamed of me. Can I tell you how many times I've been ashamed of my little brothers or they've been ashamed of me? Jesus, who has all the reason in the world to be ashamed of us, is not. Listen to Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Christian, if you are in Christ your faith is in him, if you've been baptized into Jesus, if you turn from your sins and trust that in Christ, you are his, and he is not ashamed to call you his. That's gloriously good news. The father says to his children, you are loved. You are loved. If you believe in Christ you too are God's beloved. Not because you are good, but because Christ is good. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. 
He, this is again talking about God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. How? Through Jesus Christ, through his identifying with sinners, through his sinlessness, through his death on the cross and resurrection, we have been adopted through Jesus according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We are in the beloved, so we too are loved. Even on your worst day, Christian. Do you see? The Father's love for you does not waver based on your performance. It's fixed based on the performance of Christ. Now, we wander. Yes, our relationship sometimes suffers. Yes, but not because He is loving us less. You are in the beloved. I love the way Charles Spurgeon puts this. We shall grow in grace, but we shall never be more completely pardoned than when we first believed. We shall one day stand before the glorious presence of God in his own sacred courts and see the well-beloved and wear his likeness, but we shall not even then be more perfectly forgiven than we are at this present moment. If your faith is in Christ, you are as forgiven as you're ever going to be. You are loved. And God says to his people, I am pleased. I think this one might be the hardest for me and maybe for some of us to really feel that God is pleased with his people. We all want to hear God say on judgment day, well done, my good and faithful servant. But hear me, Christian, you will hear that not because you lived a stellar religious life, but because Jesus did. Does that mean we don't strive for holiness? No, no, no. But it does mean we don't strive for it thinking that that's the prize. We have the prize, so strive for it. Ray Ortland, I recently was reading a book that he's written, and he's talking about sin. And he said, imagine that sin were the color yellow. If sin was the color yellow, then everything we do has a shade of yellow. It's, it's all corrupted by sin. Some of, your, some of your decisions last week, some of them were deep, deep yellow. Some of them were lighter yellow. And some of them might just have a tiny little bit of tint of yellow in them. But all of them, every single action you committed, all of them, all of it is tainted by sin. Can I say to Christians, even in this room, even in your pious church attending, paying attention to the sermon right now, there's yellow in that too. There's sin, even in that. Because everything we do is tainted to some degree or another by sin. So here's the question. If, if God hates sin, then how can he ever be pleased with me? We think that the, the, the task for us is to try to get all the yellow out. I gotta get all the sin out. But listen to me. God is pleased with his people because of Christ. Because of what Christ has done. We pursue holiness not to earn his approval, but because we already have it. In Charles Dickens' book, Oliver Twist, there's a guy uh, named Bill Sykes. He's a very seedy sort of fellow, and he's trying, to, he's trying to conduct a robbery, and he needs a really small chap 
to help him with this robbery. And uh, he finds one of his partners in crime, a guy named Fagan, who has in his charge a orphan boy named Oliver Twist. And Bill is wondering, can we trust Oliver with this robbery? And Fagan says something that was incredibly insightful about Oliver Twist. He says, listen, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, listen, once we convince Oliver that he's a thief, then he'll have no problem stealing. All we need to do is convince him that's who he is, that's what he is, and then he'll do what he thinks he is. Can I say the reverse is true for us, Christian? When we really learn and truly understand who we are in Christ, following Jesus begins to come out of the heart. We, we, we obey. We, we're, we're faithful husbands and wives and faithful parents and faithful church members and faithful givers and faithful evangelists and faithful employees and all of those things, not to earn his approval or love or pleasure or affection or adoption, but because in Christ we already have it. So I'm going to ask you, before we close in prayer and stand to sing, are you in Christ? If you are, then this is gloriously true of you. If you are not, you can be. This is a beautiful gospel that we receive this union with Christ not by working for it, but by trusting in what Jesus has already done to work for us. And if we believe that, we have a firm foundation. That's what we're going to sing about in just a moment. I want you to listen to these words before we pray. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That is glorious good news. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to identify with us. Thank you for identifying with him as he entered the waters of baptism. And thank you that you identify with your people when we come to you in repentance and faith. Not because we're good, but because you are. Not because we're sinless, but because Jesus is. Jesus, we thank you. May we leave here today resting our lives on the firm foundation of the doctrine of our union with Christ.